Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9 and also Nehemiah chapter 10. I'm reading again at verse 38 of chapter 9, where we read these words. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the 28th of February, 1638, a large group of people gathered in Greyfriars Churchyard in Edinburgh, and they had one central reason for being there. They were there to sign what would become known as the National Covenant. This solemn document was signed by the nobles, by the clergy, and by the laity of Scotland. In it, the signatories expressed their desire to maintain the true worship of God, to maintain the majesty of our king, and to maintain the peace of the kingdom. They further promised that they would live lives that would show that they were in covenant with God. Copies of this document were subsequently sent throughout the country and signed by people from almost every district. Some were so serious about what they were signing, what they were affirming, that they even wrote their names in blood. Well, this evening we're continuing our studies in the book of Nehemiah and we're focusing on this day when the people of Israel signed a national covenant promising, pledging their commitment to the Lord. And we're going to look at this under two headings. We're looking at the people and then we're looking at the promises. First we have the people. You see that in chapter 9 verse 38 all the way down to verse 29 of chapter 10. And in these verses, Nehemiah focuses on the people who signed the covenant. The people who signed the covenant. As we come to these verses, we can remember the context. Uh, Nehemiah has drawn our attention to the congregation of the people in verses 1 to 5. The people of Israel had gathered on the 24th day of the seventh month. They had gathered with earth on their heads and sackcloth on their bodies. They were very solemn as they were doing so. And they had gathered to give attention to the word of God and the worship of God. Nehemiah went on to draw attention to the confession of the people in verses 6 to 21. They had confessed the Lord to be the God of creation, the God of election, the God of redemption. They had gone on to confess the Lord to be the God who provides and the God who guides. They had then confessed the Lord to be the God of great mercies, the God who had maintained his steadfast love toward them despite their repeated falls into sin. Finally, Nehemiah drew our attention to the complaint of the people in verses 32 to 37. They were experiencing hardship, they were experiencing distress, and they bring a complaint about their condition to the Lord. We can move from the context to the covenant in verse 38. The people now express their desire to renew the covenant, beginning of verse 38. Throughout their history, the people had related to the Lord in terms of covenant. A covenant was a binding oath where the Lord had promised that he would be their God and they had in turn promised that they would be his people. It was a solemn pledge. It was like a marriage where both parties had said, I am yours and you are mine. 
But the people had shown themselves to be faithless, as they have confessed in verses 6 to 31. However, the Lord has remained faithful to them in the midst of this, as they have also confessed. And because of this, the people now resolve to make or cut a firm covenant. They have this overwhelming desire to pledge their allegiance to the Lord. They have this overwhelming desire to declare publicly their commitment to the Lord. The people also express their desire to ratify the covenant. Look again at verse 38. I'm a firm believer in putting things into writing, leaving a paper trail, whether it's the decision of a deacon's court, the decision of a court session, the decision of a presbytery. There's nothing worse than when something becomes a he said, they said kind of situation. You need to have things put into writing. And the people of Israel are very much focused on this in this particular day. They want their commitment to the Lord. They want their allegiance to the Lord to be put into writing and not just put into writing on any document, but on a sealed document. And furthermore, they want it to be signed with the names of their princes, their Levites, and their priests. Now, having noted the covenant, we can note its co-signatories in verses 1 to 29 of chapter 10. The covenant is signed by the national leadership. Look at verse 1. We have Nehemiah. He is the Persian-appointed governor of Judah, and he takes the lead in signing this covenant. We also have Zedekiah. He is Nehemiah's personal secretary. No doubt he was the man who was responsible for actually writing and framing this document. The covenant is then signed by the religious leadership. Look at verses 2 down to 13. We've got the priests, verses 2 down to 8. And we've got the Levites, verses 9 down to 13. The covenant is then signed by the local leadership. Look at verses 14 to 27. These are the chiefs of the people. Some of them have been mentioned in the census lists of Ezra chapter 2 and Nehemiah chapter 7. But there are also new additions indicating that this community of God's people are beginning to grow. They're beginning to take root in the land. And last of all, the covenant is signed by the rest of the people. Look at verses 28 and 29. We can note who we have. We've got the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants... We also have the people who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. And in addition to this, we have the wives and their sons and their daughters. Anyone who had a knowledge, anyone who had an understanding of what they were signing. And we can also note what they did. They pledge to walk in God's laws and they pledge to observe all God's commands. And it's such a solemn pledge, look at verse 29, that they call down, they invoke the Lord's curse if they should break this pledge. May the Lord curse us if we break faith. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we're being given an example of what spiritual leadership looks like. An example of what spiritual leadership looks like. That is what we see in Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10. The people of Israel are pledging themselves to the Lord and it's their leaders, the governor, the priests, the Levites, the chiefs of the people who take the lead and are the first to sign their names. They lead from the front. And that is an important lesson for ourselves, especially those of us who might be elders or might be deacons. 
Uh, last week I quoted from C.S. Lewis's The Horse and His Boy, where the line Aslan says to this unfortunate boy Shasta, this boy Shasta who's going about saying, I am the most unlucky boy in the whole world, Aslan says to him, tell me your sorrows. Now toward the end of the book, Shasta's fortunes have changed. And it becomes known that he is the son of a king. And not only is he the son of a king, but he is also the heir, the successor of the king. And his father gives him this charge. He says, this is what it means to be a king. To be first in every desperate attack. And last in every desperate retreat. In other words, being a king means leading from the front. Just like Nehemiah and the priests and the Levites and the chiefs of the people in Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10. And brother elders and deacons, this is what we have been called to do. We have been called to lead this congregation of Christ's people. And that means leading from the front. Not lingering in the background. And hoping that someone else might take responsibility, hoping that someone else might take the flak. We are to be the first in every desperate attack. And we are to be the last in every desperate retreat. And so I want to ask each of you brothers, are you, are you leading this congregation from the front? Not just standing at the front of the building, but in all things, are you leading this congregation from the front? And if you're sitting here tonight, brothers, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not sure if I have been leading from the front, can I ask you, are you going to? Are you going to? But as we consider these verses, we're also being given an example of publicly professing our allegiance to the Lord. An example of publicly professing our allegiance to the Lord. Again, that is what we see in Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10. All the people signed their names on this covenant document. Nehemiah and the priests and the Levites and the chiefs of the people are the first to do so. But it's also signed by the rest of the people. By all those who had separated themselves to the law of God as well as their wives and their children. We might not find these verses overly impressive. We might not find these verses overly inspiring. You might have been sitting during the reading of these verses and thought to yourself, well, this is a bit of a dull chapter from the Word of God. But these verses show us how seriously the Lord takes public professions, public explanations of allegiance to Him. And again, that is an important lesson for us to remember, if the Lord takes public expressions of allegiance seriously, if the Lord takes public expressions of faith seriously, then it's a very serious thing when the Lord's people decide not to make a public profession of their allegiance to him. When they decide not to make a public expression of their commitment to him. This is what church membership is all about. This is what participation in the Lord's Supper is all about. We are publicly identifying ourselves not only with the Lord, but with his people. We are publicly professing our allegiance to the Lord. We are publicly saying, I am on the Lord's side. We are publicly saying, I belong to the Lord. 
We are publicly saying that we are in this covenant relationship with the Lord. We are affirming that we are his people. He is our God. And so this evening I want to ask every single person who's here and everyone who might be listening online, are you going to publicly profess your allegiance to the Lord at our communion service next weekend? Are you going to publicly profess your allegiance to the Lord at our communion service next weekend? And if you're sitting here tonight thinking... Maybe not. Can I ask why not? I'm not having a go. I'm not trying to badger you. I'm not trying to pressure you. But I am just asking the question. If you are not intending on being at the Lord's table, making a public profession of your allegiance, your commitment to the Lord next weekend, can I ask why not? Well, we move from the people to the promises, then in verses 30 to 39 of chapter 10. And Nehemiah now focuses on the promises that those who signed the covenant made. There's three main promises. The people promised to abstain from mixed marriages. Look at verse 30. As we go throughout the Old Testament, we see that marrying those outside the community of God's people was a constant problem. Uh, We need to be clear in saying that this wasn't a racial issue. Uh, This wasn't like some of the laws that were passed in America in the 1950s and 60s that barred interracial marriage. This was not a racial issue. This was very much a religious issue. Uh, The Old Testament is full of stories of people wandering away from the Lord because of the influence of unbelieving husbands or unbelieving wives. We, we can think of the story of Samson or we can think of the story of Solomon. Men who started out so well with so much promise and so much potential. And then they, they drifted away from the Lord because of the influence of their significant others. All it takes is for a pretty woman to flutter her eyelashes at an Israelite man. And, and before you know it, he is offering sacrifices to her gods. And that is why God's law was so clear in prohibiting marriage outside the covenant community. And now we find the people promising that they are going to abstain from mixed marriages. They will not give their daughters to the peoples of the land and they will not take the daughters of the peoples of the land for their sons. So there's their first promise, a promise to abstain from mixed marriages. The people also promised to maintain the Sabbath. Look at verse 31. They promised to observe the Sabbath day, beginning of verse 31. The Lord had commanded that one day in seven was to be a Sabbath day, a day of rest, a day of refraining from work, a day for engaging in worship. You see that in Exodus chapter 20. But the peoples of the land were bringing goods and were bringing grain into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. They saw it as an ideal day for trade, an ideal day for commercial activity. A bit like Inverness or Edinburgh right now. Great day is a Sunday for doing a bit of business in the East Gate. And now we find the people promising to observe the Sabbath by not making purchases on the Sabbath day. And they go even further and say, or on any holy day. And they go further and they promise not only to observe the Sabbath day, but also look at verse 31, the Sabbath year. The Lord commanded that one year in seven was to be a Sabbath year, a year of rest, a year of allowing the land to lie fallow, giving the land a a chance to recover. 
We see that in Exodus 23. And now we find the people promising to observe the Sabbath year by not collecting crops. And not only will they refuse to collect crops, they will also cancel any debts so that no one will feel under pressure to be collecting crops during that year. So the people make that second promise, a promise to maintain the Sabbath. But there is a final promise, and that's in verses 32 down to 39, a promise to sustain the Lord's work. They promise that they will make a yearly financial contribution toward the Lord's work. Look at verses 32 and 33. They promise that each year they will give a third of a shekel for the service of the Lord's house, and that contribution will be used to support the work that was going on in the temple, all the different sacrifices, all the different expenses that were incurred. They also promise to make additional contributions toward the Lord's work. Look at verses 34 all the way down to 39. They'll bring firewood for the altar. Verse 34. Do you you ever find yourself thinking, maybe you don't, but maybe if you're ever lying in bed one night and thinking to yourself, I wonder where they got all the firewood for these sacrifices in the temple. Well, someone had to do it. And here are the people and they're promising that they will have someone to prepare and provide the firewood. They will also bring the first fruits from their ground and the first fruits from their trees. Verse 35. They will bring their firstborn sons, acknowledging that they belong to the Lord. Verse 36. And they will bring the firstborn of their cattle, the firstborn of their herds, the firstborn of their flocks. Verse 36 again. These animals were to be slaughtered and their blood would be sprinkled on the altar. The fat portion of the meat was to be burned as a pleasing aroma, a pleasing offering to the Lord. Meanwhile, the rest of the meat was to be eaten by the priests. They will also bring other produce. Look at verse 37. They will bring the first batch of dough and contributions from their fruit trees, from their wine presses, from their olive presses. This produce is going to be kept in the chambers of the storehouse of the Lord's house. And then they say that they will bring their tithes. Look at verses 37 down to 39. They will give a tithe. They will give a tenth of all that comes from their ground. And they will give it to the Levites in order to support the Levites. Because you remember, the Levites had no ground of their own. They had no land of their own. And so the people will give a tenth of the produce of their land to the Levites, to the priests, so that they will have something to eat and sustain their work. After receiving the tithes, the Levites in turn were to take a tenth of what they had received from the people. You see that a tithe of a tithe. And they will bring that into the chambers of the storehouse of the house of God. And the people conclude by making a final promise in relation to sustaining the Lord's work. Look at verse 39. They've been speaking about all that they are going to contribute toward the Lord's worship, all that they are going to contribute toward the Lord's workers, and now they promise in verse 39 that they will not neglect the house of their God. Back in chapter 9, they had confessed that the Lord hadn't forsaken them. The Lord hadn't neglected them. And now in chapter 10, they are committing themselves to not neglecting the Lord, not forsaking the Lord and the house that belongs to him. A huge change has come over these people. Back in 538 BC, a number of the Jews had returned to Jerusalem following years of exile in Babylon. 
And by 520 BC, nearly 20 years later, the temple was still lying in ruins. And you read about it in the book of Haggai. The people are going about saying, we cannot rebuild the temple. Why can they not rebuild the temple? They say, because wood is too expensive. The only problem is, wood is not too expensive for them to furnish and decorate their houses with cutting-edge furniture. But they were prioritising their comfort, their convenience, over the Lord's cause. They were so cold. And now in 443 BC, nearly a hundred years later, the people are promising, they are pledging that they will not forget or forsake or neglect the Lord's house again. And look at how they call him our God. Once again emphasising the covenant bond. Once again emphasising that special relationship, that close relationship, that marriage that existed between them and the Lord. He is theirs and they are his. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we're seeing an example of renewed commitment to the Lord. An example of renewed commitment to the Lord. That is what we see in Nehemiah chapter 10. The people and their fathers had forsaken the Lord in the past, but the Lord hadn't forsaken them. The people had been faithless toward the Lord, but the Lord had been faithful toward them. The people had sinned against the Lord, but the Lord had shown steadfast love toward them. And now the people recommit themselves to the Lord. They re-pledge themselves to the Lord. They rededicate themselves to the Lord. Derek Thomas writes, They are coming now with hearts that are welling over with a sense of God's love, a sense of God's favour, a sense of God's grace, a sense of God's forgiveness to them. And they are saying, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And friends, that is so important for us to remember this evening. As we've gone through the series, we have kept on saying that our aim is to regroup, it is to rebuild, it is to reach out to our community with the gospel after two years of lockdown and restrictions. That is the whole aim of this series, to encourage us to go about regrouping, rebuilding, reaching out to our community with the gospel after all that has happened over these last two years. But there is a sense, friends in which we might need to renew our own commitment to the Lord. There is a sense in which we might need to re-pledge and rededicate ourselves to the Lord. You see, the last two years, and I, I'm preaching to the choir, the last two years have been physically exhausting. And they have been mentally exhausting. And they have been spiritually exhausting for each of us. And perhaps some of us, perhaps most of us, possibly all of us can look back. And we're left seeing moments when we were faithless toward the Lord. Moments when we were fickle toward the Lord. Moments when we forgot the Lord. Can you, can you look back, friend, and see moments when you forgot the Lord over the last two years? Can you see moments when you were faithless toward the Lord over the last two years? Can you see moments when your commitment to the Lord was a little bit fickle, a little bit fragile over the last two years? 
Can you see moments when you wandered from the Lord? Moments when you left the one you love? And yet he remained faithful. And when we sinned, he showed us his steadfast love. In fact, he didn't just show us his steadfast love. He showered us with his steadfast love. And this evening, he has given us a fresh opportunity to recommit ourselves, rededicate ourselves, repledge ourselves to him. He has given us this opportunity to say, take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee, not to earn his favour, not to merit his grace, but because we have received favour, we have received grace from the nail-pierced, sin-atoning, blessing-providing hands of Jesus. Friends, will we recommit ourselves to the Lord? Will we rededicate ourselves to the Lord? Will we Repledge ourselves to the Lord when we are aware of the times when we have wandered, the times when we have drifted, the times when we have been faithless. Do you know the devil loves to see the Lord's people in a backslidden rut? He loves it when we feel we cannot move on, but the Lord loves to see his people renewed loves to see his people restored. And so if you're here tonight and you are feeling absolutely convicted, if you're here tonight and you're thinking, I have made such a mess over the last two years and my husband doesn't know about it, my wife doesn't know about it, my children, my parents don't know about it, but but I know about it and the Lord knows about it. If you're sitting here tonight and you just feel that you have made such a mess of your profession Over the last two years, the Lord is saying, you can still recommit, you can still repledge, you can still rededicate yourself, you can still say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Or maybe you're here tonight and all this talk of recommitting, all this talk of rededicating, all this talk of repledging ourselves to the Lord means absolutely nothing to you. And it means nothing to you because you haven't committed yourself to the Lord. You haven't pledged yourself to the Lord. You haven't dedicated yourself to the Lord in the first place. My friend, the people of Israel, the people in Nehemiah's day, rejoiced in the Lord's faithfulness. They rejoiced in the Lord's steadfast love. 500 years before the events that occurred at at the garden, 500 years before the events that occurred at Golgotha, 500 years before the events that occurred at the garden tomb where we see the fullest, the richest, the deepest expression of the Lord's faithfulness and steadfast love to his people. My friend, you are infinitely more privileged than the people of Nehemiah's day. You have received far more revelation of the Lord's grace. You you are a recipient of the gospel. You have heard about all that is offered to you from Jesus. You are far more privileged. You have received far more revelation. And I just want to urge you, my friend, don't, don't let these gospel privileges pass you by. Don't let these 
gospel privileges go to waste. Tonight is your opportunity to say, take my life, Lord, let it be. Consecrate, Lord, to thee for the, for the very first time maybe in your life. Maybe you came into this building and you were forced to come. Your parents said you must come to church this evening because you will be on our case. Or, or maybe you came to this building because your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your husband or your wife was on your case. And you said, well, I'll just go just to keep them quiet and keep them off my back. And then in the course of tonight, you have heard something of the Lord. You have heard something of his faithfulness. You have heard something of his steadfast love. And you have found yourself thinking to yourself, I would like to make a commitment to him. I would like to pledge myself to him. I would like to dedicate myself to him. I would like to be his. Friend, he is offered to you freely in the gospel. Don't leave this building still uncommitted. Don't leave this building still undecided. Don't leave this building still unresponsive to him. He is freely offering you this grace. He is freely offering you himself in his gospel and he's saying will you come will you commit so I ask you tonight friend will you make that commitment if you are 15 years old or if you are 55 years old or if you are 85 years old will you make that commitment and say take my life Lord let it be consecrated Lord to thee and will you go on to show that you have made that commitment at his table next weekend.